Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Owen Jones here. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking to Judith Butler. Now they're one of the world's preeminent feminist scholars. We've got a lot to talk about. Trans rights, feminism, JK Rowling, intersectionality, gender, you name it. Now first up, just some housekeeping. This new podcast is all about offering an alternative to a pretty grim right-wing media landscape. It's about taking on injustice, speaking truth to power, offering some optimism, showing there is another way, but also having some fun. Otherwise it's probably going to get a bit heavy. Now, we've got loads of interviews, discussions, documentaries for you to listen to as well, but we want to expand and offer even more content. Anything you donate via the supporter function in the podcast description is massively appreciated. Or you can go to patreon.com slash owenjones84 and become a regular supporter. That way you also have a say over who we speak to, what we talk about, what issues we focus on. It's from three quid a month. It's a coffee a month. And whatever you do, though, whatever you do, please like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, share this show with your your friends, your family, workmates, whoever. Now, with all that out the way, here I am with Judith Butler. It was recorded recently, though soon all our interviews will be up as soon as they're recorded. In fact, that's what we're doing from now on. It's a really interesting chat. I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. One queer theory, I would self-describe as a queer person. What does what does it mean to you? What does being queer mean? What do we mean by queer theory? <laughs> it's such a big question. I know. I'm sorry. They'll no, carry on along this route. It's great. I would say that um, at the beginning of queer theory, and I think I can situate myself uh, among those who were part of its beginning. Um, it seemed that the term queer was important precisely because it moved us away from strict identity categories. So, um, you know, queer means deviating. Queer means odd, awkward, not uh, following in a straight line, not um, following a developmental model of sexuality or gender or the transition from childhood to adult that depends on heterosexuality, marriage, procreation, all of that. Queer meant taking another path. So there was something lovely about queer. I I, at least for me, because it you didn't sign up as queer. It wasn't an identity card that you showed before getting into a meeting. Um, there was and remains really important um, LGBTQ. Well, let's say at that time in the early 90s, late 80s, there was LGB maybe T. <laughs> and, um, and I believe that um, as gay politics became more mainstream and focused on identity uh, exclusively or the rights and um, powers that belong to our identities as gay and lesbian people. Queer was more about, um, it was more inclusive. It seemed at least at first to be more inclusive and it promised 
um, a coalitional perspective. Uh, straight people could be queer. I mean, queerness ran through straightness. Queerness ran through public life. Queer queerness ran through ran through films that were not necessarily produced or um, um, written by gay and lesbian people. You could find queerness in the world as a set of patterns. Uh, but I think in recent years, we now, Q got added to the list. So Q is much more of an identity, like I'm queer. And of course, I say that too, I'm queer. There's, it's not exactly disputable. Uh, but I think very few of us are able to kind of lay out exactly what that means. It means I don't quite fit with a gender category that is publicly available or recognized, or maybe my sexuality is such that it doesn't map onto some of the official accounts we have of sexual development or sexual trajectories. Um, but uh, in my mind, the most important dimension of queer was that it was, um, it was coalitional. Anybody who was anti-homophobic could join a queer group meeting demonstration. Nobody was going to ask you who you're sleeping with or what you're, you know, who you dreamt about last night. We, it was about not inspecting each other's sexuality, not policing one another. It was, in fact, a kind of anti-police uh, impetus. Uh, I think it was motivated by an anti-police um, uh, commitment. Gender and gender performativity. I mean, you, you, you wrote from the early 90s onwards about gender performance, the script of gender performance. So what do we mean by this? The construction of gender, gender performativity. What does this yeah. mean in practice? Uh, I see you're really, you're, you're making, you're making me go back and work. Okay, I'm happy to do that. This is for, this <laughs> Love it. public labor, right? It's a good thing. <laughs> We're going on a grand tour. A little more caffeine, though, before we head on into that one. Um, all right, so look, I mean, the problem is I wrote that book, Gender Trouble. I mean, it was published nearly 31 years ago, and I actually wrote it more like 32 and 33 years ago. So my thinking has changed a great deal. So I can reconstruct for you to the best of my ability what I was thinking then, but I also have different views now. So um, it's, not, it's not always possible to, um, uh, to stay the same through time. You know, it's really unfortunate being a living author <laughs> who learns <laughs> from the critics because you do change your view. And if I could write it again, I might, I would surely do it differently. Um, but that said, um, the idea of gender performativity was um, focused on the idea that we, um, we uh, acquire social uh, ways of doing gender um, through repetition. Um, and uh, over time, we repeat certain gestures and phrases and ways of being, and it congeals into what seems to be an identity. So we talk about ourselves having a gender identity, but it may be that our gender is actually produced through time, through a set of practices, repeated and sometimes repeated with a difference. Um, uh, and uh, that we shouldn't really think that gender is something that is internal to us uh, from the start. It's, it's something that gets negotiated in our cultural and historical worlds, and it gets negotiated and changed through time, which is why 
you can have an idea of what it is to be a woman in the 1950s in London, which, you know, contrasts with what it means to be a woman in 2012 or, to, or 2020. Um, and uh, in, this, in the same period, uh, in, the same, in the same place. Um, gender categories change through time. And indeed, feminism was always committed to the idea that we should be rethinking what we mean by masculine and feminine and men and women. Like, you know, do we know what it is to be a man? Do we know what it is to be a woman? And why is it that certain activities make us feel like, uh-oh, we're not a woman anymore if we do that, or we're not a man anymore, or I'll become a man if I do that, or I'll become a woman if I'll do that. And I think people do uh, sometimes live with that anxiety unless they've sort of really worked it through. Um, and uh, so gender norms are there to some degree um, constraining how we act and how we allow ourselves to be seen and known. Uh, and, and, but they're also negotiated and there's, they're negotiated in history. They change in history. Something that was unthinkable in an earlier period becomes thinkable now. And um, so I think that change also happens through a certain kind of repetitive uh, performance of gender. I think there's a basic uh, misunderstanding though. Well, there, there are two. One is that we just choose our genders. Oh, Butler thinks we just choose our, they're, they're not innate, so they must be chosen. And it's like, no, not quite. They're deep-seated and historically formed and our struggle to make something new is one that takes place in a, an historical situation. We're, we're bound by norms, we're contesting norms, we're trying to produce new ways of life. Um, but that's an historical struggle and it's facilitated by collectives that are also engaged in the same kind of struggle, um, seeking to expand what we mean by masculinity or femininity or finding other language that doesn't fit within that binary. I, I, would, I would just maybe add to that, that, that many people, when they hear, oh, gender is a construction, which is different from gender is performative, we can talk about that, they think that people are saying it's fake or false or just something artificial, but that's not true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an enormously powerful social and historical reality. I mean, on that, so, you know, trans people obviously have always existed. And if we look at the Stonewall riot, the, 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 the historic role of trans people, which was long overlooked, I mean, uh, perversely somewhat Stonewall, which is the LGBT now trans inclusive organization, only became trans inclusive in this country in 2015 because of the efforts of the then CEO Ruth Hunt. Um, despite the role of trans women, in particular the Stonewall riot, and we've seen the rise of the trans rights movement. I mean, where does your your you know how's your thinking, I suppose, evolved uh, in terms of gender, in in terms of its relationship with trans rights? Where does it, where does trans being you know the trans experience fit in with? how you understand gender and yeah. and its relationship with feminism. Yes. Well, um, first of all, a number of trans people criticized uh, gender trouble, and it was very important that I learn from what they had to say. And the basic one basic thing they wanted to tell me um, <clears throat> is that um, uh, they don't think of gender as performative at all. <laughs> they think of gender as deep-seated and true and a part of who they are essentially. Um, and they didn't want their interior sense of self to be contested by this theory that, you know, 
uh, gender is socially produced or negotiated. Interestingly, some transphobic feminists think that trans people believe in gender as a social construction. Well, some trans people do, obviously, and some really don't. And that's a debate that takes place within the field of trans studies. Uh, it's a very important debate. Um, what, do, what do we mean by an essential or indispensable identity that's registered subjectively? What do we mean by a construct that gets formed over time? I mean, the term trans is is has not always been with us, although we could say that trans people have. And this raises the question, you know, were trans people trans before there was that category? Or were there other categories that were describing that experience? And, and did those categories make a difference in, in how people actually interpreted their lives, their their sense of gender, their, their ways of loving and living? Um, in Latin America, there's a group of travestis who are, well, they include drag queens and um, different, different trans folk, we would say, but they don't want to be trans. They say trans is a term that comes from the urban centers of the North and they want to stay with their own language. They don't want to have to translate into that language. So, you know, it's a it's an important uh, and complex field of study. I, I fear that too often my feminist um, comrades don't actually speak to trans people or read trans literature or trans scholarship to actually learn what's happening there. They come up with their own ideas of what it is and, and they stay with that without allowing those prejudices to be um, challenged by trans people and, and their own account of how they experience their lives. Um, research polling on both sides of the Atlantic shows that women are significantly more likely to be supportive of trans people and trans rights than men are. Uh, if there's a gender division, that's what it is. And there is a generational aspect. Uh, younger women are the most supportive of trans rights on both sides of the Atlantic. Older men are the least supportive. I don't think any of that is particularly surprising, I have to say. But what is striking, I'm really interested in this, and it is a, it's become a discussion. The New York Times has run articles uh, on it, but it's also been a discussion in this country increasingly, which is without glorifying the situation in the United States, um, transphobia is rampant. Uh, your last president, of course, uh, well, the current president, uh, banned trans women, for, uh, trans people generally, sorry, from serving in the in the armed forces along with, with other transphobic measures. But mainstream feminism, there's, there's a general consensus of trans inclusivity. And that includes, uh, there are exceptions, of course, but, uh, you know, and that includes uh, feminists who might regard themselves as politically centrist, as well as, as well as more radical left-wing feminists. But in Britain, there are lots of trans-inclusive uh, trans feminists, particularly younger feminists. But there is a very, very vocal faction who are not trans-inclusive at all, quite the opposite. And they are very influential, uh, they're very well organized and very well connected within the British media. And I suppose my question is, why? Why do you think British, there is a faction of British feminism, including feminists, by the way, who regard themselves as very left wing? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's happened? What do you think is going on in Britain as compared to mainstream American feminism? Well, I don't really know what's going on Um in Britain, and I think it's a really good question. I was hoping you might be able to tell me. 
uh, it's, always, it's always dangerous when <clears throat> an American comes in and, 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 and tells you what's going on in your own country. Um, so I don't, <laughs> don't want to reproduce that. But I must say that I think that it could be um, that, um, I, I mean, I would be interested in the following question. Um, uh, how many of the transphobic feminists in the UK are also against migration or have um, uh, very negative views about, about Muslim women veiling? Um, like, what's, what's the connection there? Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. One of, without me as well as a cisgendered man, suddenly, uh, so we've got all sorts of conflicts here going on, uh, suddenly diving into the divisions within feminism. It's definitely true that those who regard themselves as intersectional feminists in this country would criticise uh, non-trans inclusive or transphobic feminists on the basis that they're not inclusive of women of colour, for example. And all they repeat sometimes absolutely they they repeat islamophobic uh talking points as well i mean one theory put to me there's two theories i'd be interested to see what you think about this one theory is that actually this form of anti-trans feminism originated from second wave american feminism in the 60s and 70s and cross-pollinated but became quite dominant amongst a certain wing of feminism here but declined in significance in the united states another theory i think is quite interesting because you know, Ireland passed gender um, gender reform, uh, gender recognition uh, reform back in 2015. Is that because bodily autonomy is more contested in the United States and Ireland, for example, because we've had uh, rights to abortion for, for longer and, and less contested in their current form than Ireland and the United States, that that forms natural alliances between trans activists and feminists, but I don't know what you think about either of those two things. Well, um, you know, I don't know uh, who came first, Janice Raymond or Sheila Jeffries, but it seems to me that those two writers, feminist writers, um, did a lot to establish a, tra a transphobic strain of, of, of feminist theory. Um, but my, uh, my understanding, well, at least in the U.S., that was very marginal, and it... Um, and it also uh, tended to make certain kinds of alliances with, 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 with right-wing moralists or Christian moralists who thought, you know, gender should be a certain way and that it should all remain aligned with um, uh, the biological sex assigned at birth. So, um, but that in the U.S. has never been the dominant strain. And in fact, it's a somewhat... Um, I think it's it's considered embarrassing and and hateful, and I don't think feminism ever sought to be um, about about hatred or uh, applauding hatred or circulating hatred. And it's one of the things that worries me most about the transphobic feminism. You know, when we we talk about trans inclusive, um, the point is not just to add trans people to the mix. The 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 point is that many trans scholars and trans activists have always been feminists. They come out of feminism. Uh, Susan Stryker, I mean, Jack Halberstam, Grace Slavery, I mean, all of these people who are at the forefront of trans studies today, I mean, just 
they emerge from feminist theory and they struggle with feminism, but they are part of the legacy of feminism. So um, I don't even know who we would be without trans theory within feminism. So, you know, we might want to turn it around. It's not like add trans to feminist, uh, but uh, why do we think trans and feminists are distinct or even oppositional? They've been connected in my mind for a very, very long time. Um, and, and the struggles to rethink gender, to make gender more livable, to take the regulations and the criminalization and pathologization of gender, you know, off the table to oppose that at every level. That's a, that's a feminist precept. It's also a, a, a major gay, lesbian, genderqueer, trans precept. We, we agree there um, very, very deeply. Uh, so uh, I, I, I worry about this way of setting up the debate. There are feminists here and then trans people here. It's like, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Um, and 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 the same way, gender queer, trans, you know, there are a lot of major feminists who come out as trans and gender queer. I I think it's actually about how you see coalitions and how you think about social justice. So if your idea of social justice includes, say, combating racism or Islamophobia, but also gender regulation and norms that are restrictive, painful, um, carceral, um, pathologizing. Um, if you want to, if you believe that women and trans people should walk down the street uh, as they wish without fear of being attacked or uh, insulted or persecuted, then you share a notion of freedom. You're looking for a world in which all of those people can live. Um, And it's why here, Black Lives Matter, there was Black trans people, Black feminists, Everybody has a stake in reclaiming the street and taking it away from the police and making it into a space of assembly and freedom and public expression. All of those groups do. So these are moments when you see the deep alliance among these groups and also the fact that they're not like separate groups and separate segments. They're like totally intertwined. I mean, it's interesting on that. I mean, in terms of, I mean, we talk about hatefulness and that, you know, the reproduction of the same forms of, of, of hatred, which were directed traditionally against gay people. I think in this country of gay people, you know, the, the anti-gay moral panics, which is what it, what it was, of course, of uh, that gay people would be sexual predators and the focus on particularly scandals in the Catholic Church and, and the Boy Scouts uh, to extrapolate and to equate homosexuality with paedophilia, um, the sense of, of 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 preying on children. I mean, in the United States, there was that. I think during the seventies, when the attempt in California to to ban gay teachers, uh, they can't reproduce, so they have to recruit. Well, the the arguments again reproduced about trans people. Biology is is destiny. Um, there's this sense. I'd be interested to see what you think about that. Of I mean, this was, again, it was, you know, the classic was God made Adam and Eve, he didn't make Adam and Steve, but you see the same things put against, you know, that trans people are deniers of biological reality. And that's 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 what they focus on. So I'm interested to hear what you think about that, because that's a yeah. key talking point. Yeah, big question, good question. Um, well, first of all, let's remember that 
when sex is assigned, it's a, it's assigned by a set of institutions, you know, medical institutions, hospitals, doctors, and according to legal codes that decide in advance how sex will be assigned. So even at the moment of um, uh, establishing the biological sex uh, of an infant, uh, there are a number of social and um, legal forces at work. Um, so, uh, and that's not to say that there aren't um, uh, uh, biological differences. I actually think biology is exceedingly interesting in the way that it itself admits of uh, complexity, both along chromosomal lines and and endocrinological lines. So um, I, I think it's important to take into account that those fields actually do expose uh, quite 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 a, quite a great deal of complexity. The question of of um, whether how the sex you're assigned at birth is the sex you will have to live with your whole life is is one that um, pertains to, po to political freedoms and legal rights. And those who say that by that the assignment of sex uh, should be binding for a life are giving those initial powers absolute power to define who you are, regardless of the fact that you may well feel um, quite strongly, in fact, quite desperately, that this assignment is absolutely wrong. And that in order to live and breathe and move and love, um, you actually have to change that category in order for it to fit you and to allow for a social recognition and acknowledgement. Now, when someone like Suzanne Moore says, oh, you know, trans people just think they're women because of a feeling they have, right? That's a deeply dismissive, transphobic, I'm sure she would be proud to be transphobic. I, I don't think it's a, a falsehood to call her transphobic. I think she's she, she values transphobia. She wants more of it in the world. Um, I, I, I think that, that that is a moment where she doesn't understand what the, the existential predicament is for a trans person who is burdened with a name that doesn't fit, burdened with a sex assignment that doesn't fit, that if you are forced to live with that assignment, you can become suicidal. If you are forced to live with that assignment, you are effacing and denying something absolutely fundamental about who you are. It stops your ability very often to eat, to breathe, to move, to live, to love, to inhabit the world, and to call upon the world to recognize you as you are, your social and existential reality. It's not a mere feeling. It is indispensable for one's life. It's not a luxury. It is, it is, it is a way of living. It is a way of loving. It's a way of flourishing. And it's a way of affirming oneself in the world. And to be deprived of those capacities is a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. So for her to be dismissing people uh, who just have this feeling and therefore lay claim to the category of women is 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 ignorant. I mean, she hasn't spoken to anyone. She hasn't learned. She hasn't read. She hasn't cared to actually understand what the claim is, especially on the part of young people who really must have this legal and political right, this legal and political freedom in order to live. Now, I would also say that what she and her colleagues fail to understand is that there are a lot of people who are feminists who may have been assigned the sex of female at birth 
who don't have any particular feeling about being a woman. And that includes lesbian butches, or it may include genderqueer people or non-binary people um, who, who don't have that subjective sense of being a woman or don't have that social and historical sense. They get it that they're categorized that way. They operate with the category, but that's not really how they understand themselves. And it's not the language they prefer. They, they, they live in the world with ambivalence or with some kind of um, distance from those categories. But she's imagining a world in which to be assigned to sex gives you this deep subjective right to feel it and be it and no one else gets to feel it and be it. But the way we feel gender, the way we experience gender has very little to do with the sex we're assigned. It actually has to do with how we're living in our cultural and historical worlds, what possibilities are open to us and what possibilities are denied to us by virtue of the categories that have been assigned to us. Sorry to interject into the podcast, but in the interest of fairness, Suzanne Moore denies being transphobic and has written that she has no hatred or fear of trans folk. If you write or speak out in support of trans rights in Britain, you're liable to have your social media mentions flooded with people accusing you of misogyny, of hating women and wanting to erase women. Um, and that includes, actually, it's often cisgendered women who end up on the receiving end of often the brunt of that. They're often called handmaidens. Um, I think the most astonishing example of that I ever saw was when Margaret Atwood spoke about her support for trans rights and had her Twitter mentions uh, full of abuse, including people calling her a handmaiden. Where do you even begin? But what 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 would you say to that 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 argument? This is the argument that they propose that to support trans rights, that the what they call trans ideology, uh, which does seem to echo again the way people spoke about gay ideology, the gay lobby, but is that it's an erasure of women? It's a it's a war on women. You know, it, it's so silly. It's um it's actually an expansion of the category. And it's great, you know, when I was young and before I wrote Gender Trouble, I was I was going to bars all the time and there were trans people and and queer people and, and people doing drag. And I just felt like there were so many people assigned male at birth who were doing femininity and being women in ways that I could never be. And I thought it was magnificent. And it actually allowed me to both find my own vocabularies and and, and develop a much more expansive category. I mean, trans women are women, you know, trans, oh, of course they are though, because women is a social and historical category that, that gets expanded with time. And feminists have always been committed to that, right? You know, can you own property and be a woman? Yes. Do you become a man if you own property and, 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 are a woman? No. <laughs> um, can can women live non non reproductive lives and still be women? Yes, they can. Right. This is feminist principle one hundred and one. Uh, if you don't uh, procreate, are you less of a woman? No, you are just as much. So suddenly, for us to like go back to biology as destiny is a nightmare. I mean, I'm glad Simone de Beauvoir isn't alive to hear this. It would be it's a it's a it's a catastrophe of the of 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 the of the uh, greatest order, but look, there's also I mean, and I think a number of the transphobic feminists in the UK have simply confessed to this that they think a person with a penis uh, is somebody who will attack them. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I'm thinking, why do we say that about people who have penises? You can be attacked. You can be attacked by your by, by your mother, biologically uh, uh, designated as female. You could be brutalized by her because she has he ha- she has hands that will hit. Do we therefore fault the hand? No, we do not fault the hand. I just feel like there's a there's a a, a deep phobia about the penis and a kind of social and phantasmatic overdetermination of its nefarious character. So a trans woman who is preoperative or chooses not to um, have her penis removed using a bathroom is therefore a threat to other women in the bathroom who don't have penises. Why? Because of the penis itself? I mean, that is not the case. I mean, how many men would never rape? How many people with penises would never do that? And how many trans women with penises are likely to do such a thing? It is a fiction, a fantasy. It doesn't even understand what it means to to seek to put the penis out of play as as the center of sexuality, which is sometimes the case for 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 trans women so it's it's just an astonishing phobic projection that and i can't believe that it it even qualifies as a public argument it's embarrassing to me jk rowling is one of the most influential authors on earth and this year i suppose was treated as a martyr um by not least by much of the british media after her the use of her very large platform uh, to make comments about trans people and trans rights. What's your what's your take on on what she said, but also the way it was received? Well, look, um, she's a great writer, and she's um, you know she's brought so many people into the world of fiction, and and I really respect what she's she's given, especially to young people in this world. Um, and I think it's um, it's terrible that she chose to make public these views or that she didn't have a chance to work them out in a, in a less than public venue. Um, uh, I understand she has a traumatic history. Many of us do. Um, but a traumatic history, I mean, it's terrible to be um, subject to sexual violation for anyone is absolutely terrible. Uh, um, but that itself um, does not mean that um, uh, that, that that all men are 
are rapists or that the penis wields this nefarious power on its own. Um, I, I think that um, she has um, uh, not, not used her public position well, that she's fostered hatred and misunderstanding and perhaps capitalized on uh, a history of sexual trauma in order to um, afflict and persecute others, uh, which does sometimes happen uh, among traumatized uh, people. And, and it is, in general, a kind of responsibility not to pass along your trauma, not to, um, not to, um, to, to find ways to persecute others um, in a kind of revenge fantasy uh, for the persecution one has um, uh, received. So, and I think there are some displacements in there that make it terrible. I, I don't think that she should be reviled or treated with hatred. I, I don't think that she should be um, insulted or told to die or threatened with death or any of this. I think we need to take the conversation down several notches and actually find out what is the what is the deep conflict here? What is it about? How do we reflect upon that? And and too often the the pages of newspapers are um, repeating incendiary uh, remarks and social media, uh, especially rather than providing platforms for a more thoughtful understanding of, of what the misunderstanding is, what the conflict is, what the fears are, so that we could uh, move forward to build a, a fabulous alliance of, of feminist, queer, trans people um, who are also um, dedicated to fighting racism and, and saving the planet. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sad to me. It's, it's just enormously sad how it's um, played out. Before I ask you just about some final other things, one thing I'm I'm quite interested in is is in this country, Andrea Dworkin's often uh, her work is often relied upon by opponents of trans rights. But her late part, sorry, her partner of the late Andrea Dworkin said that actually Andrea Dworkin was a trans ally. I was just wondering what are your thoughts because her work is very heavily often, it's often brought up, or, or she's often very much looked up to by that wing of feminism. Mm -hmm. You know, Andrea Dwork, and I, I did know her uh, briefly, mainly I went to hear her talk when I was young, and um, she's a very powerful writer. She was a, um, a, a, a strong Jewish feminist who um, uh, really rocked everyone uh, with what she had to say. Um, and um, and I think that uh, her views on pornography were uh, ones that I absolutely did not share. Um, and I, I was afraid that her views, and I was, I believe, right, that her views, especially when they were taken up and codified by Catherine McKinnon, led to widespread censorship, which included the censorship of you know, feminist health books like My Body, My Body, My, my Our Bodies, Ourselves, or, um, or uh, Gay Erotica. Um, sometimes these books were stopped at the border because um, they were, they were considered to be pornographic because they were graphic uh, representations of, of bodies and sexuality. So for us to live um, with, with less shame and less policing on, on, um, 
on basic issues of sexual freedom, I do think uh, we have to oppose her views on pornography. She, um, she also, I think, sometimes wrote as if uh, the penis were the problem and she affirmed her partner, um, uh, Stoltenberg is his name, uh, for uh, not making the penis central to his own sexuality, suggesting that men uh, had a more polymorphous sexual capacity. And I think she was basically in favor of a kind of um, uh, poly polymorphous sexuality. And uh, and that's that's interesting. But my guess is that she had a a greater imagination for sexual alternative ways of experiencing sexual pleasure than than her transphobic allies. I I don't think of her as transphobic, and I uh, I see why some people would take her strong condemnations of men uh, to be um, based on biology. But I think that she understood it as a structure of social domination and insisted on the social analysis of domination, rape, assault, um, and that it was not um, um, uh, uh, the result, none of those were the result of biological facts. Uh, biological essentialism could not account for them. Intersectionality, what's your, what's your understanding of what that means and how it relates to modern feminism and also the queer movement, for example? Well, um, I find um, very often in Europe, perhaps not in the UK, but elsewhere in Europe, that intersectionality just means taking race into account. And of course, it's a much more complicated theory. It started um, as a legal uh, theory that um, Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Hill Collins developed uh, in the United States, trying to understand how black women could gain standing in courts of law um, and also uh, explain forms of discrimination that were neither just um, uh, sexist nor racist, but both at once. Like, how do you describe that compounded effect of sexism and racism as it registers in the uh, for for black women or for women of color more generally? And this was an enormously important legal. Um, uh, uh, um, a contribution. Uh, and it also allowed people to realize that we can't just talk about men and women. Like if you tell me, for instance, that men are, are more transphobic than women, I immediately now ask, well, are those white men? Are they white women? Like, tell me a little bit more because women and men don't just come without colors. They're, when it's unmarked, it looks like it's just white and we're supposed to assume that. But it's never that, right? It's those categories are never uh, just white, and when we treat them as if they are presumptively white, then we are reproducing a certain kind of effacement of intersectional difference. Um, intersectionality is one way of handling the problem of race, and I think it is inflected by the law. There are broader uh, political ways of thinking about race. Um, I think Angela Davis draws on intersectionality, but I wouldn't say that her views are restricted to the intersectional framework. So that's an anti-racist position that thinks about racial capitalism, for instance, and thinks about the legacy of slavery and carceral contemporary carceral systems as the continuation of the legacy of slavery and how that works for 
black women in particular and what have been the responses, aesthetic, musical, political, a different kind of framework, also profoundly co coalitional and, um, and international in its, uh, in its reach. Uh, so I think that we can't, we can't think about feminism without black feminism, but when we start talking about black feminism, we, we're talking about a complex set of positions and they're not always totally in sync with each other. Um, here in Britain, about one in every 785 people have died during the pandemic, one of the worst hit countries on earth. Uh, excess deaths are about 85,000, uh, one of the worst hit economies on earth. The government is picking fights with Michel Foucault, who died a month and a half before I was born in 1984. So they've definitely got their priorities right during the worst crisis since World War II. But more generally, there, you know, there was a speech last week by a government minister here condemning postmodernism, talking about, uh, you know, structural you know, against these ideas of structural racism, for example. There's a big uh, government attack on so-called, well, not so-called, but on critical race theory. What's your take on this? Their view is that within the British Academy, these are pernicious. Uh, intellectual expressions which need to be driven back, that they've polluted media and government understandings of the world, that there's been a, you know, and they use, I mean, several Tory MPs signed a letter condemning cultural Marxism, which many would correctly understand as an anti-Semitic trope, uh, but this idea of the march through the institutions, uh, which which they kind of ripped off Antonio Gramsci, the late Italian Marxist philosopher. What's your take on that? I mean, whether or not you know much about it. I mean, there are, as I've said, better things going on in the world at the moment. But what's your take on that? That what what the British government using their bully pulpit? Uh, you know, this war on on on, every, on Michel Foucault to critical race theory. Yes. Oh my. Well, I think all these books, um, at least, uh, well, on this shoulder, all of these are are cultural Marxism. <laughs> before we get to the Freud and some other things over there. But maybe Freud is cultural Marxism. What do I know? No, probably not. Um, look, I think there is in the U.S. and the U.K. as well an attack on race studies, an attack on ethnic studies here, an attack on gender studies that um, it has not taken form explicitly in the U.S., although we have an attack on gender as a category and an insistence on the part of the Trump administration that the sex assigned at birth is the true and only sex, right? So Trump and the transphobic feminists in the UK are in complete agreement, very frightening. The anti-gender ideology uh, movement, as you may know, has moved through the evangelical and uh, right-wing ca uh, Catholic communities in Latin America, but also through Europe and Switzerland, France, Germany, and now we're seeing um, explicit legislation in Hungary, uh, Romania, and Poland against gender or and against trans rights, but also against reproductive freedoms and against lesbian and gay parenting and adoption. So we are, you know, what's happening at the level of these intellectual currents, you know, as seen by the right wing, um, is also happening at the level of right wing social movements that believe that the family is being attacked by the notion of gender, um, uh, that uh, women will no longer occupy their traditional role in the household, um, that lesbian and gay parenting is being allowed, that lesbian and gay marriage is being allowed and applauded. And, and they want to roll back uh, many of these um, uh, 
uh, rights that have been fought for and won in the last uh, couple of decades, um, uh, or maybe last three, three, four decades. And I think that, um, uh, you know, there's a, probably a confusion, like postmodernism, Foucault, structural racism. Like, well, postmodernism, that's sort of Lyotard. Um, I don't think Trump ever read Lyotard. I don't think the Tories have ever read Lyotard. I don't know. Maybe they have. Um, if what they're worried about is the disputation of facts, um, well, we see that the anti-science propaganda in the U.S. is able to dispute the existence of facts without any recourse to so-called postmodernism. Um, I think what we're seeing uh, perhaps is um, is uh, um, uh, is is the notion that that facts uh, are indeed framed and interpreted in many different ways, and they can be interpreted away, as we see in revisionist histories of various kinds, um, and and they can be foregrounded and interpreted and made publicly meaningful by good science writing which involves narrative and framing and interpretation. So I don't know. I don't think postmodernism um, disputes facts. It just says that facts are given to us always with some presentation. And you, as a journalist, know this, right? You have to figure, how do I present these facts? Uh, how do I present these facts so people understand them, right? Facts depend on presentation to be understood. Um, that's a post. I think, I don't know, because I don't even know if I'm a postmodernist anymore, given the way these allegations were. But Foucault, I mean, I don't know. It's true that Foucault talked about state racism at one point in his work. It was extremely important, but he let it go. So he's not responsible for a theory of structural racism. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that people who oppose the idea of structural or systemic racism, which is more often the phrase used in terms of the movement for, for Black lives, uh, they don't want to think of racism as permeating all institutions. They want to continue to think of it as this person's attitude or this person's discriminatory action. But they don't want to think of the UK as a as a country that is permeated by racism. They want to contest that. Um, and yet more and more scholarship has emerged that shows what the colonial legacy is in um, the UK and how deeply racist its social institutions have been and continue to be. We only need to look at how certain migrant communities are ill-served by the National Health Service to get a contemporary um, confirmation of that fact or ask who is in the UK's detention centers as we speak. Um, so um, so there is that. Cultural Marxism is, I think, just, just deep anti-Semitic diatribe. I, I don't know if it really has another meaning. It seems to refer to the Frankfurt School, those Jewish dissidents who were fleeing from the Nazis and who developed a, a critique of domination in society, uh, worried about technology, worried about fascism, wanted, wanted to know uh, how, how we grasp the world that has uh, turned inside out and upside down, uh, you know, what kind of frameworks do we need in order to understand what's happening? So that just strikes me as anti-Semitism under a kind of flimsy cover. Um, uh, I, I do think that people who, who are nationalists, who, who want to preserve white supremacy, who 
want to preserve hierarchical notions of the heterosexual family are disturbed by uh, critical theory in the broadest sense because it asks whether these social institutions are necessary, whether they can be dismantled and or reconstructed, whether other ways of life are possible and even desirable. So those are dangerous questions, uh, as is the notion of political dissent. I mean, one thing we do have to think about is, you know, states have extraordinary powers under the pandemic um, to track people, to survey them, but also to decide questions of public hygiene. And in places like Colombia and Panama and Hungary, Romania and Poland, as I mentioned, they are using this um, uh, power to decide public hygiene in order to keep trans people off the street, to deny their rights, to reverse their legal entitlements, uh, to deny lesbian and gay parenting happening right now in Hungary, uh, to excise gender from from the curriculum of, of state state sponsored universities. Um, these are these are massively reactionary movements. Um, and I would say in the US, we see the attack on ethnic studies and race studies as also a, a way of defending against the recognition of uh, just how pervasive and systemic racism is. And, um, and as a barely thinly disguised uh, def defense of, of white supremacy, quite frankly. Just a couple of other things, because I've, I've, I've taken so much of your very valuable time, but someone's, someone got in touch, who's a, a, a white cisgendered woman who's an academic, uh, and she asks, uh, what limits does your work have as an intersexual feminist, as a white, uh, as a white woman or white cis person, Although you're non-binary, anyway, I'll just go through this because you, 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 you I should have read the question first. As a white person from the global north, and how best do you and this person in academia address that fact? Um, well, I can't speak for other people in academia. It is true I'm white. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. There's no question about that. And one, as a white person, one struggles with whiteness and has to come to call into question some of the presuppositions that one makes as a white person. You know, how I speak, how I'm received, my mobility in the world, um, where I feel fear, where I do not feel fear, what my relationship is to power, to privilege, and to policing. Um, so all of those things are, I think, quite operative, and it's, um, it's an opportunity right now uh, for many white people to think about how they are complicit and how they can reproduce a different sense of a of a racial world um and and try to realize um through alliances uh principles of, of racial justice so that's an ongoing commitment and i think every white person has to pledge it um as an ongoing commitment that is both self-reflective and collective um one question is with whom do you make alliance with whom do you struggle and and especially um, in struggling against racism, why it's important um, not to take the lead and, and to listen and to learn. I would say I've had to listen and learn also to trans people. Um, I am myself non-binary, don't consider myself cis. Yes. Um, I get mistaken as a man a lot. I think I'm probably um, uh, in between people um you know i if if cis is how you're perceived by others then i don't know i would say probably 25 percent of the time i'm i'm perceived this way or that 
Um, and, uh, and it's not altogether clear. I don't mind it. You know, I don't mind the pronoun that's given to me. I'm kind of interested in the fact that it fluctuates. Uh, I, I think cis is a, is a complicated category. On the one hand, it's marked something that was unmarked and that's good. On the other hand, do I define myself or am I defined by perception? And what if perception is not in agreement? What if the general perception is not in agreement about what my pronoun should be? Like then, you know, we're in a, a complicated scene. So I don't think anybody gets to call me cis in, in, and, and, and it's not cis and trans. They're not, that's not a binary system. Gender queer is a complicated terrain and, um, and perhaps uh, it's a generational thing, but perhaps that, that term and, and non-binary appeal to me or allow me to, to live a bit more freely than other terms would. Yeah. So I should have, I was reading through submitted questions and I should have checked that one. Yeah. Um, just, just, just finally, in terms of now in the age of the, the age of, of Trump is, is coming to an end. What hopes do you have as a progressive, if you like, for the emancipation of, well, for the, for, for the feminist movements, for the, uh, for queer, for the queer movements, for people of color. I mean, do you think, you know, I mean, Trumpism isn't dead. Trump, Trump, the president may no longer be president, but reactionary forces in the United States are still very, very powerful, very, very strong. What, what do you think the challenges are uh, now the Democrats have, have the White House? What do you think maybe the space that has opened up? What, and what, how limited yeah. is that space, if you like? Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, it's true that Trump will somehow leave the White House. We're, we're not quite sure whether it will be in a wheelbarrow or through some other means. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, Obama suggested sending in the Navy SEALs if necessary. I thought that was good. But you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right that um, that Trumpism, or perhaps we should just call it fascism and white supremacy, um, are alive and well. And one of the things he did was to en enliven and mobilize a number of people who um, uh, have deep hostility to democracy, who, um, who are fascists, uh, who believe in white supremacy and believe that this country should be representing white supremacy. And that will continue and we don't know what form that will take. So that's going to be an ongoing struggle against those forces, not just at the electoral level, but um, throughout society. So the social movements that have been strengthened uh, under the, the left social movements that have been strengthened under the Trump regime as oppositional movements are now going to have to uh, think along two different lines. First of all, they have to criticize the, the, the centrist Democrats who are in power, um, and that includes both Biden and Harris. Um, I, I gave money to Harris briefly when she stood up to Biden <laughs> I was going to ask about that because people... well, I've been condemned for supporting her, but actually I voted for Bernie and they didn't really do their homework because they would have seen I gave more to Elizabeth Warren and to Bernie, but they didn't care about that anyway. Uh, but no, we need to oppose the Democratic centrists and um, and uh, that will be hard to do because we see that they are not allowing the left 
part of the Democratic Party or the left that is outside of electoral politics that belongs to social movements uh, to be represented in the administration they are currently building. So it's very clear. We have two sites of struggle. Struggle. It means that our, our alliances have to get stronger and these sort of ridiculous um, and, and, and hateful internecine fights um, are, uh, are, are something we need to set aside in order to um, really fight for social justice that is, um, that is based on strong coalitions. Uh, and that means acknowledging the differences that exist among us, but agreeing to work together in order to um, uh, produce a more economically just world to fight uh, racial injustice and, and racial violence, to insist on sexual and gender freedoms that harm no one, um, and to uh, to build a... Um, a uh, a, a world that can be sustained by this earth. Uh, and so to fight for the earth as well, we, we really must do that. Uh, I think socialist ideals have been um, animated in this country in a new way, thanks in part to the Sanders campaign, but also to a number of grassroots movements. And the question now is what kind of socialism will that be? Will it put white men again at the top and will gender and race become secondary or tertiary concerns? Or will it really be um, a, a form of socialism that is fundamentally informed, if not led, by people of color and queer folks and trans folks who are uh, committed also to economic and racial justice and uh, sustainable environment? These are the big questions before us. Judith, it was an absolute honor Thank you so much for yeah. your time as the world collapses around us. Yes. There's potential. There's potential and there's hope. There's always hope. Thank you so okay. much. Bye. Cheers for listening, everyone. If you want to support us as we expand, it is hugely appreciated, either with the supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Now, please like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and share this show with everyone. We've got loads to come. So we'll be speaking soon. 